You are listening to the podcast When Life Gives You Lemons, presented by me, Emma Levy. Having worked with elite athletes for most of my career, it's always intrigued me that a significant number of high-performing individuals have encountered some form of adversity earlier in their lifetime. My fascination into this grew when I had my own brush with adversity, when I was diagnosed with breast cancer in May 2020, in the midst of the global pandemic at the age of only 36. During this period, I questioned whether it was my positive mindset or maybe something deeper, which enabled me to bounce back and to train and compete for a triathlon just one month following completion of all active cancer treatment. The goal of this podcast is to explore this concept further by meeting a variety of high-performing individuals who have experienced adversity, but who have come back stronger. Today, I'm welcoming Sam Jallo to the podcast. Sam has a remarkable story. He grew up in war-torn Sierra Leone, where he faced unimaginable adversities and sorrow as a young child. He survived the brutal civil war, and despite what he had been through, he managed to find a path forward through his love for tennis. Regardless of the fact that he learned to play barefoot, and initially with only his hands, and then a tennis racket made from plywood, he was able to make the Sierra Leone national team, and tennis eventually saved his life. Sam is now a professional tennis coach, TEDx speaker, author and winner of the BBC Inspirations Award 2020. Thank you, Sam, for coming all the way from Liverpool to record this podcast. We somehow found each other on LinkedIn. And as soon as I read your story, I knew I wanted to get you on this podcast because you can't hear your story and not feel inspired. But I think we need to start at the beginning. So can you tell us what it was like growing up in Sierra Leone? Well, first of all, thank you, Emma, for having me down here. I absolutely love coming down to London, which is one of my favorite cities in the world, apart from Liverpool. So anyway, so yes, uh, growing up in Sierra Leone was really tough because um, I was one of 11 children and uh, both my parents, mom and dad, were extremely poor, uneducated, and um, they couldn't read and write or even write their name to save their own lives. So that's how tough it was. And the uh, area where I was born, Tembetan, which is in the capital city, Freetown, is one of the worst slums in the capital city itself. So this is a place where 99% of the people, they struggle to even make like 50 cents a day. So it was that bad that... Um, all the people that I know that we grow up with uh, live on one meal a day and people survive just trying to uh, work in the jungle or, you know, growing up vegetables and stuff like that. Or some people go to the dustbin and all around the town and try to find scrap metal to put together to help to feed their family. So I grew up in this area. Like I said, uh, my mom and dad, you know, um, they decided to have many, many children, even though they were extremely poor. But there is a, a concept to this uh, in most poor countries in Africa and some places around the world as well, where po poor people tend to have a lot of kids in the hope that uh, one of these kids will go on to be successful. And like my friend in South Africa said, um, if that one child becomes successful, you become like the uh, black tax, they call it. So that means you got to pay for everybody else in the family. So, but little did I know that uh, life and, um, you know, my path and my family were preparing me, you know, to be the, the black tax for the family. As he always say, you become the breadwinner. So, but it was tough. Like I said, um, 11 children, my parents decided to have. And then during that time as well, uh, Sierra Leone had a, one of the highest mortality rates in the world. So, so many children were dying at birth and then women giving birth was the highest in the whole world out of 7.5 million people by then. 
So my mom, um, because in Tembe Town, we lack the medical facilities and, um, you know, lack the money. So it was quite amazing how my mom actually delivered all her children without uh, medical help. But also due to that um, fact is that uh, when my uh, mom delivered children, she keep losing some of them. So before me, uh, three of my brother obviously uh, died. Two of them died at birth and then one of them died at infancy. So life was tough. One meal a day and then um, we never had bed or we never had electricity for water. We have to walk miles and miles away with five or ten gallon, you know, plastic container just to bring water home. And also, like I said, uh, uh, where we slept was on the floor. So we never had um, anything like a proper bed. So my parents found um, cardboards in the dustbin. So that's what they would put on the floor. And me, my sibling, cousins and friends who make it to our little uh, 10 foot by 8 foot little room. And uh, we all slept on the floor like sardines. Wow. So, you know, so it, it was quite pretty. But another thing I would say is, Emma, even though as life was tough as a child, some of the greatest memory I ever had, like uh, when I do my story presentation on stage, I always said, despite all these challenges in Tembetan, because at that time we had cholera, malaria, dysentery, typhoid, all kinds of things to deal with. But Tembetan was the most magical place I ever lived. You know, we got the mosquitoes and all kinds of stuff. But and the house where we live, which was an old rusty corrugated house, it's like every night when we go to sleep, uh, the house come alive, you know, even more magical than Harry Potter. <laughs> because and and the things that when I say come alive is that we have visiting friends who will come into the house. But these are not friends on two legs. I'm talking about, you know, rats and mice cockroaches mosquitoes spiders if you I, I don't mind it doesn't matter how big the spiders is i don't mind spiders and then we have black scorpions which are dangerous but my favorite of all the visiting friends uh, we have in the house are the ones with no legs so you know the snakes oh, no. <laughs> so <laughs> but you know it was magical it was fun you know, growing up with your siblings and friends, you all sleep on the floor and uh, except in the raining season when we have leaky roof. And I can remember my mom, you know, getting buckets and plastic tins and stuff to put up the roof so that to stop raining water from drenching us in the house. So, but that's what makes Tembe Town magical for me and great memories and stuff like that. So you have happy memories from being a young child and then at some point you were given up for adoption. Yes, so uh, uh, thanks to my dad. <laughs> and when I was uh, six years old, and um, at that time, like I said, my dad, uh, he was an electrician by day, even though he never went to school. He, uh, he was very good at reading numbers, so I don't know how he could do all this uh, amazing electrical stuff um, without reading and stuff like that. So, and um, at night he was a security and during the day he was a handyman who could fix table, chair, you name it, whatever he could do to survive, to bring money into the house to help. But he was struggling. So the landlord of the whole corrugated house uh, decided they wanted to adopt a child because their kids have grown up and moved out. Uh, out. So uh, this man, his uh, mom was 86 years old by then, so they needed somebody to help her. So and he asked my dad and made an offer to my dad and said, look, Mr. Jallo, if I can um, adopt your son, I'll make your house rent three times cheaper. 
And my dad, without even thinking, he go, yeah, you can have him. So here we go. So do you know why you were chosen and not your other siblings? Um, because they wanted a boy at that time. I was only I was the only boy to my uh, to my dad and my dad and the landlord. They got on very well. You know, there were other boys around, but I think people can you can see four or five different people but there will be one that maybe catch your imagination or stuff i don't know so for whatever reason he i was the chosen one which for me it was uh it wasn't a happy moment because even though like i said timber town we were poor we struggled but as a community as a kid i have all those great memories you know playing hide and seek uh, during the moonlight when the moon the full moon and uh, running around with your sibling helping your mom you know in the vegetable plants and this kind of memory was really good, but, and then I could remember the day when my adopted, you know, uh, dad or uncle came to pick me up and my mom has put just one or two of my clothes in a black plastic bag. And then here I was crying my eyes out because for the first time, you know, uh, leaving my siblings, my magical house, my magical timber town and I'm um, going to a new family. So that was uh, also another challenge. Mm, and so was, did you move far away from your family? It wasn't too far away. It was just a few miles away from uh, from my family. But because my adopted family, they, they were so strict that uh, the only place I was allowed to go was uh, when I go to school or go to church or if they send me out of the house to go do something. So the grammar was uh, quite disciplined and uh, they always give me time to get back home. And in that new family, were you happy? Well, uh, yeah, so living with my adopted family, I think, was one of the biggest challenge I ever faced as a child because um, these people were extremely strict. So uh, nothing was forgiven. So justice must always prevail. So as a child, obviously, we make a lot of mistakes. And I, I'm, I'm going to say, I think this will be the first podcast I'll say that because my kids laugh at this. Um, the first whooping I ever got was because um, I went to sleep and then um, which I was still sleeping on the floor on cardboards in the corner in a room and at night because of my uh, I think that night that old woman absolutely frightened me with all the rules that I was given as a child so I uh, wearied myself whilst I was sleeping. And in the morning, I felt ashamed. So the old mama uh, must have smelled the wee-wee. And she said, did you wee-wee in your sleeping place? And I said, no. So, and she lashed the living monkey out of me. And I will never forget that. So she put me right straight. And then the other thing, which I even uh, forget to mention, that my name Sam, uh, because my original name is Porridge Allo, because that's the name, my Porridge name they gave to me. So when I went there, the old uh mama decided uh grandma i call her decided to change my name to sam because they are christian people and and they said you know sam in the bible doesn't lie he doesn't steal and sam is a good person so i want you to be a good boy I go, yes ma and i was really really scared and so you know so for the first time uh you know think i knew things was different and then so when i started taking lashing from this grammar and uh, with all the preaching and i used to say where is this Jesus Christ that she talks about? Where is the forgiveness, you know, as a child? But you, there was no option for me, you know, uh, because my dad wanted me to be adopted. And bless my dad, he couldn't afford to look after all of us. So he wanted me to go to school, to have education, to be disciplined. And I think my dad also saw that the county was taking a wrong turn at that time. And so he wanted, me, he wanted the best for me. 
So the only way uh, to get the best for me is to, you know, give me to those people who can send me to school, they can afford it, and then also they will be quite disciplined with me. But at age six, that must have been very hard to understand. It is very difficult to understand. I was upset, obviously. I cried myself. My first day uh, living with my adopted family, I cried the whole night. And um, these are memories because people say you have a great memory. say, yes, when you have such a, a terrible upbringing you don't forget those things the good ones you tend to maybe forget them because you know everything is done for you but nothing was done for me so uh, you have to also be quickly grown up in places like Sierra Leone back then because uh, even when you're four years old you become like a worker for your family you do things that uh, normal four years old you won't find even an eight year or ten year old doing in England so those kind of things you never forget them because it was all struggle from the beginning you know, like I said, uh, you have one meal a day, you'll be lucky. And if you have two meal a day, we always say Santa came too early. So so it was um, it was uh, tragic, I would say. It was really tough, but um, it makes you become tougher. Yeah, and there must have been periods where you couldn't really see a way out. So how did you then move forward and how did you find tennis? Well, and um, first of all, after I think when I was... Uh, uh, just a year living with my adopted family, I made an attempt uh, escape. So I run back to my uh, parents and um, my mom was fine because I told my mom I was getting whipped because sometimes I got beaten so bad that when I went to school, uh, other kids used to laugh at me or they make a joke, said, did you fight with a tiger or lion? Because I had scars all over my body, which uh, wasn't hidden. So... And in school, obviously, we had shorts and shorts uh, sleeves, and then we wear shorts so you can see all the whip mark on my your legs and then all over my body, my hands and stuff like that. So I made an attempt at escape, went back to my parents. My mom was okay with me, uh, and then uh, but when my dad came home, he asked me what was I, what was I doing home. So I told him, and you know, my mom said. Uh, you know, I think they punish this kid a lot. I don't think it's right for him to be there. And my dad said no. And he said, I'm making the story up, so I got to go back. And he gave me a few seconds to leave the house. So I got to run again, crying my eyes out. So now I was in two trouble because my adopted family have been looking for me. They don't know where I've gone. So when I go, went home, oh, yes, I took, <laughs> I took such a good beating. And then um, when I was nine years old, I remember one day... Um, the grandma sent me because Sierra Leone, we have a lot of light out, a blackout and all the time the light will go off. So we use kerosene lamp or candles and stuff. So the grandma sent me to go get a kerosene, a gallon. And she gave me some money and the gallon and said, I want you here in half an hour. So this was about uh, probably about 10 mile and a half walk all the way from where we live. And uh, so on my way, I met other kids playing football. So, you know, I love football. As a kid, you want to play. I was always in the compound working and doing stuff. And I completely forgot about grammar and the punishment, whatever I couldn't give a monkey. So I had a cut toe because I never had shoes. And my toes were bleeding and we play. I enjoyed myself. And then after we finished the football game and then I checked my pocket for the money, I couldn't find it. So now I realize I was in the worst situation ever because I haven't got the kerosene, I haven't got the money, and I'm late. I'm way over an hour late. And grandma has given me strict warning that I have to be back in half an hour. So yeah, so um, it was like, 
you know, going to your own, uh, you know, they're going to put you in hell. So I have to walk home half a mile, crying my eyes off before I got there. So, well, let me just get home. I enjoy the football, but let me just go and get this done with. So I think that was one of the worst beating I ever received from them. And then after that, uh, I decided, you know what, and um, I'm going to leave this place. So uh, unfortunately, where well, one of my dad's uh, brother died, and then I went uh, for the funeral and then never came back. And you were only nine years old? I was nine, yeah. So where did you go? Because your parents said you couldn't come back to them. Yes, I went to, uh, at first I was on the streets and then I went to my uncle's, my late uncle's wife and I was helping her selling stuff and living with my cousin. But then my dad kept popping up there. So I was back and forth on the streets. I was living from place to place. Sometime I was sleeping in the market place where my mom used to sell. And because I can't go back home. Obviously my dad, he... He would have, my dad also loved whipping, so it was a traditional thing to put you on the discipline. So, and and my dad whipping, which I don't think I've spoke about this very much because I don't want people to think my dad was like a very bad man. I think it was the discipline went to a different level where my dad used to whip us with cables, you know, like this. So, because he was an electrician, he would knot the cable together, and it doesn't it doesn't whip us all the time. But when my dad does. It's like the most terrible beating you can ever have. So I was always afraid of my dad in a way, but I do respect him as well in uh, later on, not when I was that young. So I live on the streets and uh, stay with my aunties back and forth. And until um, 1991, March 1991, that's when the civil war started. And as we all know that the war end of uh, 11 years and I know... Uh, the UN and all these kind of statistics said about about 70 to 200,000 people, but we lost way over a quarter million people in the war. And um, there was about 2.5 to 3 million people as refugees out of 7.5 million people. So that was almost half of the population refugees and, you know, and a quarter million died and so many people scarred for life. So, and uh, also what was very known is that 65% of the fighters in the rebel forces, uh, they were young children. The youngest rebel was four. So between the age of four and 19, so these were the most 65% of the fighters were that young. So, um, so for the possibility for me at, at that time to be a child soldier was quite high. But thankfully for me and not so much for my dad, my mom and dad, that same year, they separated. And um, so my mom moved to a place called Hill Station, which is up the hill and which is a place I'm familiar with. And so next uh, to my mom's little bungalow house was uh, three tennis courts. So these tennis courts were built in 1904 by the British uh, settlers there. And I remember also as a kid when my mom used to take me up the jungle because my mom caught wood. Uh, one of her job is to cut Asian trees and uh, put all the logs together and burn charcoal to sell in the market. And then the branches she will put together as a wood which would be between 15 and 30 kilo. Carry that in her head for five, six miles just to sell, you know, to come back home and help to feed the family. So every time we're coming back from the jungle, we'll make a stop by that tennis court because she will put the load down, have a drink, have a rest. And I used to wander just on the fence and looking at all these beautiful people playing tennis in their beautiful fancy dress and um, lovely tennis uh, rackets. But I think what was very certain at that time was uh, it was only mainly white people who were playing. 
So, so I used to think to myself, well, I think this is only for rich white people, this kind of sport, because that's all I saw as a little kid. So a few years later, here I was, 10 yards away from those same very tennis courts. So um, when I moved here to my mom, and then I had, uh, I've never planned in my life that at that time that I want to play tennis. But I've seen this sport. I loved it. Then I met a friend, a young lad also who was, uh, Alimami was uh, between a year and a half and two years older than me. So me and Alimami become such a great friend. From day one we met, we become such a good friend. And then uh, we started playing hand tennis and all this kind of stuff. And Alimami become what I call my guiding angel, like my brother. We did everything. And then at some point we started going to the same secondary school. And, you know, but as you know, tennis is not a, a cheap sport. And, and, you know, getting a racket was very, very difficult. And my love grew for the sport from then on. And um, so because we didn't have rackets, there's a popular sport called hand tennis where we play with bare hands in Sierra Leone. And I became very good. I was beating Alimami and beating all the best players in around the area. Do so, you play with a tennis ball or a tennis ball? So it is a tennis ball and your hands and the bare hands on a and kind of makeshift court or against so the wall. So we have a court which is um, is a rectangular kind of shape a tennis court, like a mini tennis court. So the rules is like table tennis. So you bounce the serve, you bounce the ball on your side into the other side without a net, but you have a line in the middle. So equal half of the court, and then you play bare hands. And I could hit the ball pretty fast. And then uh, Alimami, they introduced me to boat bat. We call it boat bat tennis, which is a plywood. So we caught like a more like table tennis bat, but bigger. And that's what we used to play with. And then Alimami was a junior champion in that and a few others. By the time you know it, I was beating these guys. And the first time it was really noticeable was when a Sierra Leone Lebanese guy came to play his regular tennis. And... Um, so he sat down watching me and Alimami playing best of three, uh, no, best of five sets. So you got to win three out of five uh, to win. So we play a tiebreak system to 10 points. So at that same day, it was probably 36, 38 degrees. So it was quite hot. It's a concrete floor. And uh, we're both playing barefoot. And I got three of my nails hanging off. We were that competitive and I wanted to beat Alimami. And I couldn't give a monkey about my... So I couldn't care whether my toe was actually falling off. That would not even bother me. All that bothers me is I want to beat my friend so badly just to prove that, you know, I can play tennis. And and this Lebanese guy saw this. And I remember him after I beat Alimami, three set to two. And he said to me, boy, if anybody could put a racket in your hand, you would be a national champion. So those words and things become like uh, also motivation, you know, to me. So this guy, whenever he comes to play his tennis, he will take his racket and give it to me and he will hit with me for a few, maybe half an hour before the other uh, member will turn up. So, but from the one, since I started having the racket, you know, everybody can see that my hand-eye coordination and things for tennis was really good. But also what I... I want to uh, stress out to say again, the sole reason what made me wanted to play tennis was um, just a year after being with my mom, I overheard uh, one of the kids was saying to me, you know, uh, PJ, they call me at home for Porajalo. Some people call me SPJ, Samuel Porajalo. So say, PJ, you know, um, the kids who have gone to, uh, to Nigeria and Togo, they're coming back, you know, tomorrow. 
and they got to play international tournament. But I didn't realize that the young kid at 12 years old could travel to go play. I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, not only that, they gave them 250 US dollar for allowance. Oh, Emma, you would have thought <laughs> this is like the most valuable uh, news I've ever had in my life as a child. So then this is where the obsession of me becoming a tennis player actually starts. And he said, uh, you know, they give them national tracks. So I go national tracks with In fact, I even won the tracks with more than anything because <laughs> I want to represent my country in this. I, I, you know, everything sounds good. They give him them shoes and clothes. And so and then I become very obsessed um, because I figure out that uh, $250 will help to sustain my family for half a year. And the uh, rest, I can pay my school fees. And then my mom, I'll help her not to go to the jungle because it's quite a lot of money by then for somebody as poor as myself. So, you know, so and then, um, yeah. So I was very obsessed to the point where I think my mom thought something was wrong with me. But <laughs> but then I remember going to see my dad and um, I said to my dad just to uh, ask for his own uh, moral support, not because my dad didn't have money. So I said to him, you know, dad because it was years after i left so he realized now i wasn't staying with them i was growing older now i still love my dad to this day in fact you know i know my dad passed away but i've loved my dad ever since you know so i said that you know um i've seen this sport that i want to do tennis and i want to be a tennis champion and my dad advice to me was uh, son if I ever see you touch this rich white man's spot, I'm going to cut all your fingers. And this is the threats my dad gave to me. So to myself, I thought, this old man is so crazy. Well, thankfully, I'm living with my mom. So you won't be cutting any of my fingers. So I'm off. <laughs> so. <laughs> so at this point, you're playing on the tennis court. Yeah. But you're still barefoot. Barefoot. Yeah, I was playing barefoot. And then Ali Mami was really good. He was already an established uh, junior player. And so I think what was really good that is that I've seen something, I have ambition, I have love and passion, but also I have someone like a brother who was good enough to drive me crazy because he was so good and I want to be better than him. So that, that helped so much with my improvement. And then there was a big wall on the other side of the court number three, which is, I think, about, about 16 foot high, the wall. So that wall becomes like my PlayStation. Nowadays, the kids with mobile phone and all these computers. So that was my PlayStation. If I'm not in school on the weekend or doing any other things, even if it's 10 hours, I'll be on that wall. I wouldn't even feel tired. Mm -hmm. I will hit and hit. And then when Almami come, we'll play again, you know, and stuff like that. So, but with the reality that we didn't have all this kind of equipment, but we managed. And then the only way to get uh, that 250 US dollar and get to the national team is you have to play the nationals. And the nationals are held maybe twice a year or once a year pending because at that time, obviously, the war was still on. So and then in 1995, I was 13 years old and I decided, OK, I was good enough now and I'll play one of the nationals. So if you get to the final, which is on the 12, 14, 16 or 18, I was playing on the 14 because I was more than 12 years old. So the two finalists automatically qualify for each category. So all you need to do is to get to the finals. And then I remember playing in the quarterfinals and um, all of a sudden I was playing barefoot, you know, 36 degree, sometimes 40 degree hits because it gets really hot in Sierra Leone during March and April. And... 
whilst I was playing the quarterfinal, there was a guy who stood outside, a white guy. Uh, he was American. The reason why he was watching me because I was playing barefoot. So he couldn't believe that, you know, somebody's playing under these hits, you know, barefoot. And on, a, on a hard surface, a hard it's concrete. Surface, yeah. yeah. So anyway, by the time I finished the quarterfinal, which I won, he has disappeared. Uh, he's left. And uh, so the national coach he was talking to said to me, he said, PJ, he said, you see the guy was talking to me? He said, yeah. He said, uh, he told me he's going to bring you a gift tomorrow. So anyway, I didn't think any much about it. So the following day, I came back for the semifinal the most important match of my life, you know, all I need to do was to win that match. I was confident, you know, went into the match playing against the number two junior player in the country by then, who was really good. He's played international tournament and um, we've trained a lot together. So I knew him, I knew his game, but uh, he knew me as well. And he was quite confident and he's come back from uh, international tournament. So he was good. And then, yeah, so this guy turned up with a brand new pair of shoes said wow that was amazing but i was kind of not sure about the shoe thing but then put them on went on court and here i was running left right left right and then um after a few games i realized that this was a mistake <laughs> this shoes thing is not for me but you don't want to feel ungrateful you know to take the shoes off at that time and then i lost the first set because I couldn't move, I couldn't run, and um, every, my feet felt like they were glued to the ground, and then they were moving because the shoes were slightly bigger, and I was really struggling. So it wasn't about my opponent in the tennis at this point. It was me battling between me, my opponent, and the shoes. <laughs> because <laughs> So in the middle of the second set, I was getting really angry with myself and the shoes, so I went to the umpire, I couldn't hide it. I said, please, uh, I need to take the shoes off, they're killing me. And he said, yeah, if you want to take it off, fine. But the look he gave me is like, what an ungrateful child. That's the kind of look. Mm -hmm. So anyway, took them off, won the second set. But unfortunately, I lost the final set. So $250 US gone, a trip abroad gone, national track suits gone. And I laced the shoes together, walked four miles home crying my eyes out back to my mom and Ali Mami was there and uh, he keeps saying to me oh don't worry you're getting close you're taking the set from the best players but I didn't see it that way and I was so upset I honestly I cost the living monkey out of this guy on my way back I won't repeat the things I was saying <laughs> but <laughs> I was that frustrated and but one of the things that I learned in a very early age is the psychology of um, what life was supposed to be was going to be like that nothing in this world is given to you for free. If you want it, you're going to work for it. Even when you feel you've worked hard for it, you still don't deserve it until you prove everyone wrong or everyone prove yourself right. So, and I got my coach and a few other people who encouraged me and said, well, if you get into semi-final after just a short few years of playing and you're challenging the best player, I can only imagine what happened. But as a child, you want it. These guys, they were middle class. They don't need the money. I want the money to help my mom and my family. So, you know, that was my first disappointment. But I kept trying when I was uh, 14. I couldn't make it. Then the war. I tried at 15. Nothing. I tried at 16. <sighs> it was getting tough. Either the association, they don't have money. There was the war going on. There was this. There was always. There's no national. And you play. And then I keep losing to the same guy all the time. You know, it's like, who made this draw? But again, the guy was the number one. He was even better than this one. So you don't even want to play either of them. And But 
And then, um, obviously, of uh, February 14th, uh, Valentine's Day, 1998, and my life took another big turn, turn around, and um, tragedy struck out of nowhere. So that morning, what happened was uh, I was sleeping, and then Alimami ran into the house and slapped me on the shoulder and was tapping me. Go, PJ, Sam, come on, you got to wake up, and we got to leave. So I wake from my own dream while sleeping and all I could hear was the heavy missile that was passing through the roof and you can hear and then a big bang on the other side and me and Alimami woke up, we run down onto the tennis court. So we there, while all this commotion is going on, military jet flying, dropping bombs on Kiria, we up in the mountain so you can see everything that was going on. As young kids, we think we were invisible. Me in general, I thought bullet would never hit me. And stuff like this. So we, we stood there wondering, where do we go? And then I stood, Alimami stood like this. I was in front of him. And then one of our other friends called Farrell. I've not seen him for, pff, I don't know, many, many years. So Farrell run and said, PJ, come and see the bomb explosion on the other side. So I took a few steps away from Alimami, just got here. And then I just had AK-47 behind me. So when I turn around, Alimami has been shot you know from a very very close range and so many bullets through his chest so you know seeing uh, somebody who i regarded as my angel you know my brother my best friend the best thing that god ever gave me apart from my kids was alimami and seeing my friend falling down and run up to him and i was screaming i was on my knees and his blood was just everywhere and um watching him took his last breath was probably to this day the most traumatic thing i've ever seen you know, somebody who you love, who love you, care about you. There was no animosity. He wanted me to be the best player, even though he was better. And, um, you know, he did everything when I go to school. When people are mocking me, he will jump in and say, hey, stop it. And things like that. So he was like my real brother. And at that same time, while he was on the floor, listening to him, he was breathing very heavy. And then he took his last breath and I knew he's passed away. And my mom at that time has just run down. So she thought I'd been shot. So she stood on the other side of the road. My mom was really looking at me in a way that I've never seen before, but I understood what my mom was thinking. And she started crying without saying anything. And that was when people always said to me, Sam, when was the turning point in your life? That was the turning point at 16. You know, I knew that day I wasn't invisible. And uh, to see a military truck came and they took Alimami and they just chucked him in the truck. And uh, never saw him again. Never knew till this day where they buried him. Nobody knew because they were just burying people in mass graves and stuff like that. And um, so, yeah, that completely changed my life. And I made a promise to myself I would do whatever it takes to become a better person, to not be careless. And I'd never want to see such grief in my mom's face. And I'll try my best to be successful for the sake of Alimami. So. You know, so yeah, so um, after that, there was a lot more. <laughs> yeah. So after that, you, you said it was a pivotal moment in your life. And then it was the nationals after that, wasn't it, where you did get to the finals? Yes. So uh, again, it was in October. That was eight months after Alimami passed away. And uh, the national coach, uh, he called me and said, you know, uh, look, PJ and um, Sam, uh, we've had an um, invitation from the ITF. So if you... Uh, if you keep training, you'll be good. I would like you to be one of the two players we're going to uh, take. So now I can only play the under-18 because I was over 16 years old. 
and I've been trying for so many years and I couldn't make it. And he said, I would really like you to be part of this because of your work ethic, because of your beliefs and your, you know, your mindset and everything. So I started training and then in November of that year, uh, he organized a mini tournament. So it was 16 of us and uh, after the first eight were eliminated. So he put the top eight players together. Eight of us left, they only need two. And they put us in a box of four, so we play like a tie break. So we got the number one seed, number two seed, and who did I end up with? <laughs> Your nemesis. My nemesis. <laughs> and this guy till this day, I love him and hate him. <laughs> anyway, so again, I was with a guy called Gabriel, who was the number two seed, who used to beat me a lot, a lot, a lot. So, and but I think what was the different this time is I've I explained this to people a lot. There, sometimes we go through adversity. Those things can break you, make you, but that's a decision that we have to make. We have to look in ourselves and ask, am I going to let this drag me into problems or am I going to use this as a motivation? So uh, thankfully for me, I use Alimami's uh, pass away as a motivation because I wanted to please him because of the kind brother uh, way he treated me like his brother for that short time that, you know, we become brothers and I want to do him justice. So it was between me and Gabriel again and went to that match and I said, not today. I will do whatever it takes, you know, to get out of this. So at one set all, five all, for the first time I saw he was nervous and then I break him. And then I found myself 40 love up and then my hands start shaking, legs start shaking. And then I thought again about Salimami. I said, not today. So I did a big seven and then the game there. So and the first thing I did was look into the sky. It's not I wanted to cry. The cry just came. So I cried my eyes out. And um, even Gabriel was kind of upset with himself, but he was quite happy for me because he gave me a wink and then he wished me good luck and stuff like that. And um, the coach was happy. Everybody was cheering so loud because people knew exactly how much struggle I've been through and how desperate I wanted to play. So, so yeah, so that was that kind of thing. And then finally, after seven years... Um, <laughs> You made the national team. Made the national team. <laughs> so how do you think you were able to adopt that mindset? So like you said, when you be, when you go through adversity and you can choose either to, you know, yeah. get stronger or, or the opposite. How do you think you were able to control that? Because uh, one thing is, it's my mom. And, uh, and my parents were poor. They were un uneducated in that way. Well, I, maybe I don't want to use the word uneducated. They never been to a normal school. But they weren't silly. So the discipline, but also for me as a child, I wanted to please my mom. I wanted to do things for my mom, even my dad. So when Alimami, Alimami passed away and uh, what I saw from my mom, I decided from then on, I want to be the man to look after my mom and my dad at the same time. So, you know, so that kind of helped me to, to think more positive than negative. That look on my mom's face, and the last breath I had from Alimami kept me in a way to say, okay, to do these people justice, I'll do myself justice by being good, uh, by being a good person, by making sure that I have a good education. And mind you, I was paying my school fee from the age of uh, 11 years old. I was paying my own school fee, mm. you know. And then you left Sierra Leone and you went to compete in the nationals. Um, and whilst you were gone, the war took a turn for the worse, didn't yeah. it? So how was that? Was that quite a bittersweet moment? 
So when I left uh, Sierra Leone, I went to Ghana for the first time. I played my first ever international tournament <laughs> and I won my first match 12-0 against a kid from Niger, which I will never forget that. And then lost to the number three seed, Tamba Samasa, who was a really established player from Mali. And then we went on to Togo. And whilst we in Togo, that's when the biggest attack happened, you know, in the capital city, uh, known as January 6th. So that's a national holiday now in Sierra Leone. So within a week, they kill over 12,000 people. So the rebels and the soldiers, they regroup. And then they came back after Ekomo kicked them out. And they, they launched a very serious attack. And at that time, I didn't have uh, communication with my mom or my dad or any of my family members. So I didn't know whether they were alive or not. All we saw on TV was the whole city was upside down and what was going on. So, yeah, and then we end up in Nigeria. And then once we finish in Nigeria, we couldn't go back to Sierra Leone. So we were in uh, Ghana for almost uh, three months as refugees and trained back at the National Sports College. So when I went home, nobody was speaking, nobody was on the road. All you see is bombshell, bullet shell, you know, you could smell all the things, people who have been died and rotting and all this kind of stuff, vultures just cycling all over the place. And my heart was going, I just hope all my family members are alive. So when I went, thankfully, my mom, my sister, everybody was alive. I even laughed before I cried because they've all lost so much weight. Everybody's mm -hmm. head was big. <laughs> and we, it's funny how you go through all this adversity and we just laugh about it. Instead of crying, we actually make jokes. Say, Goodness me, your head has gone bigger than I remember. <laughs> and, and yeah, so thankfully I had some money with me and that helped to sustain my family. And then after that, I left. I got a scholarship to go to Ghana. And study. I was there for a few years and left Ghana and then moved to Gambia. And that's where I met my kid's mom. And then uh, we got married in uh, in the Gambia. And then after that, I moved to England in, in uh, 2004. Then 2007, I played my final international tournament at the ninth All-African Games. Wow. So I was actually honored by the, my nation. And um, as a surprise, they told me that um, because it's your last tournament, we want you to be the flag bearer for Sierra Leone. Wow. So I could remember the day for the open ceremony. Uh, we've lined up and the Sierra Leone contingent didn't turn up because they missed their flight. But I was there with the others and my vice tennis president and uh, me with the flag and with all these thousands of all the best athletes in Africa. Now, Africa got over 1.4 billion people and 54 nations. And we were in Algeria, North Africa, in Algiers. I remember entering the stadium of over 60,000 people. The noise, the colorful dress, the drums, everything, the fireworks. And I was <laughs> like, wow, who would have thought a boy from Tembe Town barefoot playing? Who's that told me he's going to cut my fingers? And here I am as a flag bearer to represent, you know, 7.5 million people. And this for me was some of the best um, memories. I remember looking into the sky and thanking Halimami. And I said, I know you're up there looking at me smiling right now, but this is for you. So it was really good. And then 2007, I gave it up on coach um, playing. And then uh, to this day, I've gone on to coach with so many uh, great players, uh, including world number one juniors. Mm. It's an incredible story, Sam. Can I ask you why you share your story? I share my story because I wanted to inspire young children and people around the world that it doesn't matter what your race, your color, your nationality, your gender, it doesn't matter what the struggle is. If you can believe in yourself, find something of a passion and don't use your past 
don't dwell on your past in a bad way. Dwell on your past in a good way and use that to motivate you and that nothing is uh, impossible. So I want to let them understand that they can find, they can do something for themselves. You know, they can believe in themselves. There's a lot of bullying. There's a lot of discrimination. There's a lot of, you know, racism. You name it. Because I go, I speak to thousands of children in schools and college and all this kind of stuff. So I tell my story to help them, you know, to be mentally strong, to also have empathy and passion for each other. You know, when it comes to bullying, I remember being in a school, a child was crying to me and said, you know, they all hate me. They this, they laugh at me. They said I will be nothing. And I, I smiled to her and said, look, you're going to be the best champion I've ever seen, you know. And sometimes when people say this thing is because they actually see that you're going to be a champion. So take it the good way, you know. So I like to tell my story to inspire other people, to make sure that also there is hate and love. As people have, will listen to my story that I didn't have anything easy. I took a lot of beating from the people who are supposed to look after me. There's other things in my story which I didn't talk about when I was arrested and tied and beaten and all this kind of thing. So I decide to go the opposite of violence and things like this. So it's to tell people that if we learn to love and respect everyone, the man who gave me my first shoes was a white American. The man who gave me my first biggest sponsor was a white guy from London. And the Chinese people who have helped me, there's Indian people who have helped me, there's Lebanese people who have helped me. So I see the human race as a family. So this is why I like to tell my story to say, if only we can love and care and respect and appreciate each other, we won't be fighting each other. Mm. And uh, when there's love, there's uh, the possibility to hate and fight is very much limited yeah and we talk about resilience on this podcast and yeah. i think things like that and those you know atrocities that you've been through obviously made you a more resilient person yeah yeah because if you've endured the worst yeah then you know yeah you got to be very very re resilient like uh when i go to school and speak i have what is known as the samjalo menu so there's 10 things i put in that menu and resilience is one of those and the other thing i talk about is uh the power of a good attitude so the A-T-T-I-T-U-D-E uh, has a meaning. So when I teach, I teach about all those letters, what it means, you know, and determination come, the D stand for determination. How uh, do you work on your determination and things like that? And, um, and then the E, obviously, expectation. Can you handle expectation? When expectation is being given to you, like my grandma gave me the money and the gallon and said, go bring this and I mess up with the expectation. I pay the price for that. And sometimes people fail because they can't handle expectations. So resilience is something you got to have if you want to survive. Because uh, that is like the petrol that keeps you going. If you have a Ferrari, if that Ferrari run out of petrol, it doesn't matter how expensive it is, it becomes useless. Yeah. So your resilience is the petrol in you. And if you run out of resilience, it doesn't matter how talent or how much struggle you've done, you just put that into waste. Mm. So yeah. I have to bring this to an end, unfortunately. Yeah. But yeah. a final question I like to ask my guests. If you could go back in time to when things were their hardest, what do you wish you could have told yourself? I wish um, somebody would have encouraged me more to play tennis. You didn't play enough? <laughs> I played enough, but uh, I think sometime one of the things I was watching a guy who is an Indian-British guy was talking about how words are powerful. When this kid uh, was really doing well in school, he tell his dad, Dad, I've got my A. I'm sure you're going to be nice with me now, all this kind of stuff. And his dad says, son, I'm too busy. I'm too busy was the word that kills this kid. 
when drinking, smoking, and doing all kinds of stuff until he loses life. But if his dad would have chosen to say, son, I'm proud of you, that's all the son needed. And for me, I think there was a lot of negativity over the years, you know, when I was growing and I wish people would have helped more, you know, with uh, saying how good you, even when mm-hmm. I was doing good, sometimes people would say, are you wasting your time? Because yeah. you know, so if I was changing anything, is that human character? But again, I wouldn't change it uh, because there's a people, it's opinion and things, but I'm glad that I make the decision to keep pushing. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sam, for coming on the podcast today. Your story is utterly inspirational. Please continue to share it, to demonstrate to people that even despite these absolute struggles, pain, adversities, it is possible to move forward and to achieve your dreams. So thank you. Thank you so much. No life is uh, endured without going through adversity. So as long as you appreciate your life, because it's the greatest gift we have, and you're one of the luckiest people on the planet to experience this life itself. My dad said, if you have breath in your lungs, you have a time to live for an hour, two hours, three days, four days. So keep moving, keep appreciating, and be good and kind to everyone. Thank you so much, Emma. Thanks, Sam. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode with Sam Jallo. I thought it was an amazing episode. What an inspirational guy. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast when life gives you lemons. Thank you.